Drum roll, please. Coming out to you, almost live, from the most boring apocalypse in human history. The Cottonmouth Club presents. Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Cottonmouth Presents. Thank you for uh, tuning in again. I want to tell you that we are, uh, we, we're constantly trying new stuff, and I'm sitting here with Adam Scott. Hi. Say hi to the people, Adam. And we have decided that we're going to start talking about books. Uh, as you know, we're doing the Cowboy uh, Storytime Reading Series with Danny Furness, and there's not a good way that we could read a whole book. I mean, shit, at this point, we might be shut down long enough that we could do that. But uh, I don't really want to, and I don't think anyone else does either. So instead of doing that, Adam and I are going to uh, we're going to pick books that we actually have read in common that we both love, and we'll probably read some passages out of them and talk to uh, each other and by extension you about uh, what we have read and what maybe we think you should read or reread if you've already done it. Uh, please also keep in mind that we do work for tips, so I'm going to put a little sting in here about where you could tip us through the tip jar coming right now. Hey guys, if you like what you're hearing, give some love. Our tip jar is on. On Venmo at Cottonmouth Club dash staff. And without uh, further ado, so Adam, what, uh, what 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 book you bring in today? So today I brought in a Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin. One of the greats. Absolutely. I was looking at the earlier part when 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 we were walking over. He showed me the book. I opened it up. It's an old library book, right? Yeah. Was it one that you checked out? Oh no! Uh, bought this on eBay. Okay. Yeah. So, so someone, someone. Hopefully that you paid them enough for them to pay whatever. The, I think the last date on that was from ninety three. Ninety three. Yeah. Probably. But I was looking at it. One of the first dates was uh, December tenth, I think, nineteen seventy eight. This is uh, a supplementary book number eight two five three seven four from the Montclair School District in Ontario, California. My goodness, Ontario, which is actually oddly the town over from where I grew up. Wow, that's that, true. That is um, spooky, quinky dink. And it could have been my copy. Serendipitous, perhaps. <laughs> but there was one that said, what What was the one? The ear- earliest is November 17th, 69. November 17th again from 70, 75. January 5th of 76. So January 5th of 76 was the day before my fifth birthday. And it might actually be the first time I read this book. I mean, I'm going to go ahead and call it. This is your... This is a book that you checked out. It might be. No. I mean, I didn't. <laughs> my town had our own library, so we didn't go to Ontario for, for library books. But still. It is one of the greats. I love this book. Uh, it was certainly foundational for me. I've always, you know, as a, as a kid, I read everything. Literally everything that was in my house. But I always had a love of fantasy and science fiction with a much, with a big... Uh, with a big lean towards fantasy, and I still do. This is one of the few books from that time that I probably love more now than when I first read it, and I loved it a lot. I feel that too. I mean, having read, you know, all the classics, uh, War of the Rings, Tolkien, uh, C.S. Lewis in there. Right, for um, sure. I never got into the, the Wheel of Time stuff as I was a little bit later, but I mean, you know, definitely the fundamentals. It's worth it. It's I, long, but it's worth it. For sure, this is what I've heard. And right. I didn't even really pick up science fiction or fantasy until until I'd been reading other stuff for a while. Well, I'll take that back up. One of the first books I read, first uh, chapter books, was a Michael Crichton book. It was Jurassic Park. Yeah. So that's... I that's mean, terrifying. <laughs> it's, you know, speculative fiction, I suppose. It's in, that, in the same wheelhouse. I remember I was at... Because I was always a big reader, and we went to go visit some friends of my parents, kind of out in the high desert, so it was a couple hours away. And their kids were either way older or way younger. 
And so my older sister and I were just kind of like in the middle. So I was probably like, I don't know, 11 or 12. Yeah. Old enough to not want to play with the little kids and young enough that their older kids were like, get the fuck away from me. Uh, and the dad, his name was Gene. He came up to me. He's like, hey, I heard you like to read. And I was like, yeah. And he just drops a, a Tom Clancy novel. <laughs> <laughs> And I read it. It well, was uh, it was uh, on for October. I remember that copy being in the house. My my father was a big Tom Clancy fan, but never picked that one up actually. But we were talking about Wizard of Versity. What uh, it it was definitely it was definitely foundational. She's a beautiful writer. I think that it's it was always so impressive to me, especially later when I could really think about things in context. That someone who wrote so beautiful like technically it's a it's a young adult you would probably call it now young adult fiction i think when they were putting them out in the 70s they were categorized as young adult but i've read that i don't think that le guin really considered it young adult fiction she was writing for everybody she wanted right. people who were like you know kids that were seven eight and also adults who were in their 60s to to read this stuff right and as well they should because it is it's beautifully written and there's not one bit of there's no pandering and the language, there's no reduction of the language. The language is beautiful. But it's also not beautiful in the same way that Tolkien is beautiful or C.S. Lewis is beautiful in, in the prose. Because it's, it's not flowery. It's, it's not poetic. It's not poetic. In, it's in, not poetic. In, right. It's very direct. It's, I mean, it's sort of more similar to the way that Hemingway would have written if he had written sci-fi and fantasy. Stuff. Fair. It's very, it's very clean. It's very direct. Um, every word has its place and its power. It's not about uh, long, flowing passages. I mean, this book itself is... It is a short book. A hundred and, hundred and nearly 200 pages, over 200 pages. That's about it. That's an incredibly short book. So just because we're doing this, if you had to kind of just logline it, what, what, what's it about? So keep in mind, this is, was written in the late 60s, before Harry Potter, before any of this other stuff. Uh, about wizards, but at, uh, as you can tell in the title, A Wizard of Earthsea, it is about a child born in what you might call abject poverty, who then finds that he has magical powers. He is taken under uh, the tutelage of a an older, mysterious uh, fellow who lives on the same island that this uh, child is born on, and he is uh, instructed by the mentor to not seek training uh, away from the island and not go to the wizarding school, but in fact to stay with him and learn about nature and learn about himself and learn about silence. But the child does not and uh, goes against his mentor's wishes and seeks fame and glory and success. And power. And power, most definitely, yeah. elsewhere. And that becomes the linchpin of... The uh, you know the the big inciting incident for the rest of the story, which I won't really give away too much. About. No, and what I what I I mean, e even as a young reader, I always love the fact that I say Jed, Adam says Ged. I say Ged. We'll go with Ged because sure. Because Jif and Gif. Right. Because I don't want to fight about it, honestly. Right. He was a very flawed human, but he was flawed in a way that anyone who's gone through adolescence can recognize. Unpack that. I want to hear more about that. Well, I mean, it's, you know, he, even from his beginning as like a young apprentice to, uh, you know, to this ultimately very powerful mentor. Incredibly. Right. He was not just reluctant. He was almost kind of truculent in his re reluctance. He was a little pouty about it. He's like, and he always wanted to go faster. 
he always wanted to go faster, and I think that led ultimately to, as he got older and as he went into manhood, his fatal flaw became trying to go too far too fast because he could. And he had the ability and the power and the knowledge, and but he didn't have the, the, the wisdom to, right. to use that correctly. And I think it's like a, a teenager with their first car. You're like, I can drive fast. You're like, no, you have a death machine that you're in. And if you, if you do what you think you should do, then you're going to kill yourself or somebody else. And that's the power of his story. And it, this is only the first book in a, well, it's a tetralogy now, but it was originally just a trilogy. It's the power of his story uh, throughout the books is that it's not about, it's not about magic in some kind of way where it gives the user great power over things or it gives the user uh, some kind of um, advantage over other people. It, it, if there's a central theme, it shows that to use that power is actually uh, relatively antithetical to the balance that exists in nature and exists in human society. So it's, it's, it's a, you know, a lot of people might, might see this, uh, this story as something similar to Harry Potter or something of its ilk, but it's not. Not in the slightest. It has it, it, the exact opposite message. Uh, and again, not to give anything away, but I mean, as as the story progresses and as we learn more about uh, Ged, the, the character, the main character, we find that he wants to use his magic less and less. Right, because he learns more about it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's about being And comes towards sage. his mentor, right? I mean, it's about, it becomes about silence and about nature. Well, let's let's... What the hell just flew into my eye? It's okay, man. It's a powerful story. You <laughs> need to cry for a second. It's all right. Just let it out, man. So we picked out a couple of passages that we like. So I'm going to have Adam read one now so you get an idea of what the language is and give us give us a little setup for what, what it is you're going to read. Right. So speaking of language, one of the central conceits in the, in the story is that magic is dependent on knowing the names of things, understanding the language. And it's in a language that uh, most of the characters in the uh, in-universe don't use anymore. And the wizards, the magic wizards, they are out to uh, find those true names. And that's where their, their power this, comes The study from. of names is so... And, and their and own names are a big deal, too. This is when Ged is at his, um, in, uh, enrolled in the uh, wizarding school. Ged sighed sometimes, but he did not complain. He saw that in this dusty and fathomless matter of learning the true name of each place. He saw that in this dusty and fathomless matter of learning the true name of each place, thing, and being, the power he wanted lay like a jewel at the bottom of a dry well. For magic consists in this, the true naming of a thing. So, Kurim Karmaruk. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> so, Kurim so Kurum Karmaruk had said to them once, their first night in the tower, he never repeated it, but Ged did not forget his words. Many a mage of great power, he had said, has spent his whole life to find out the name of one single thing, one single lost or hidden name, and still the lists are not finished, nor will they be till world's end. Listen, and you will see why. In the world under the sun, and in the other world that has no sun, there is much that has nothing to do with men and men's speech. And there are powers beyond our power, but magic, true magic, is worked only by those beings who speak the hardic tongue of Earthsea, or the old speech from which it grew. That 
is the language dragons speak, and the language Segoy spoke, who made the islands of the world, and the language of our lays and songs, spells, enchantments, and invocations. Its words lie hidden and changed among our heartache words. We call the foam on waves Sukian. That word is made from two words of the old speech, Suk, feather, and Inian, the sea. Feather of the sea is foam. But you cannot charm the foam calling it Sukian. You must use its own true name in the old speech, which is Essa. Any witch knows a few of these words in the old speech, and a mage knows many, but there are many more, and some have been lost over the ages, and some have been hidden, and some are known only to dragons and to the old powers of earth, and some are known to no living creature, and no man could learn them all, for there is no end to that language. Yeah. And just knowing Ged as a personality, and him remembering that, it's just, and that's the, the impatience of youth, right? I mean... I'm not going to spoil what happens to him after the school, but it is, uh, you can imagine the impatience of a young and smart and potentially powerful young man sit, sitting, listening to someone say like, how long do I have to sit here? Like, all these, some like, people spend their whole lives in here. I it's came, like, I want to be out there doing it. I came here to cast spells, right. motherfucker. Exactly. Like, what do I have to do? Like exactly. sit around and listen? No way. Well, there's a and, and there's another part of that that actually I was I was reading about this earlier, and Earth Sea is an archipelago, so islands and water and sea. I mean, imagine it's it's imagine its importance to the people who who uh, live there, right? You know, boats are the way you get around, unless you're magic, I suppose. So, Ursula K. Le Guin, the author, said of her own writing or about making fantasy novels. She says, great novels offer us not only a series of events, but a place, a landscape of the imagination which we can inhabit and return to. This may be particularly clear in the secondary universe of fantasy, where not only the action, but the setting is avowedly invented by the author. And that makes perfect sense when you read this book, because she's so... Everything matters. Everything is specific. But she's also very different than somebody like Tolkien, in the sense that her world building is not there for some kind of you know, simple set or backdrop or it's, you know, you can't walk around in her universe and say, I know the history of this one castle. I know the names of every elf that lives in these woods. Le Guin doesn't do that. She world no. builds to the extent that it creates an emotional um, connection for the reader, not as, a, as some kind of, uh, you know, lack of a better word, like dick on the table. She's not interested in that. She's interested in world building to the extent that it serves the story. No doubt. Tolkien Tolkien, I mean, Tolkien, Tolkien wanted to create a language in a world in which that, a universe really, in which that language And that's how it started lived. for him. He wanted to and, create a new Right. And he wanted almanacs and he wanted, yes. like, I think it, that, I think he wanted to live in that world. But that being said, Le Guin is, I would argue, just as good because you, you feel like you're there. You feel like you know the history and the people there without it being overly pedantic. Although, I mean, there are certainly plenty of words where, you know, average reader would pick it up and be like, look at that dumb 17 letter long no doubt, word. No doubt. But also, I mean, it's, still it's one of the few books that I probably, it's probably the first book that I could say is not at all derivative of Tolkien. Not at all. And no. so when you think just, just for context, there's, you know, I have a, a good friend of mine who, as soon as you say fantasy novel, she's just going to 
check out, right? As soon as you say magic or dragon or anything, she's like, uh, yeah, no. But this is not that. And that's also, nope. that's also what I loved about it. And also because I'd read it so young, it was already kind of stamped in my head as I was going into the T.H. Whites and the Gandalfs and yeah. the, you know, and the, the, you know, Susan Coopers and the other kinds of wizards that existed in these kind of things. And I, I would say, man, I would say that the reason, the reason that I love Le Guin for her, because she doesn't, has, she hasn't written just sci-fi and fantasy, but the reason why I love her sci-fi and fantasy is because she treats her worlds as if she was an anthropologist. Right. Not as if she was creating it. And I, in some sense, I do think that it's because of it's a more female or feminine or, uh, you know, we use whatever term you want to use, but she is approaching it uh, as opposed to the more um, macho impulse that somebody like Tolkien has. She's just simply reporting on what she's found, whereas Tolkien was, I'm sure, pretty adamant that he was creating. He was creating everything. I imagine he was. Speaking of the world building thing, that's a passage that I want to read. And so early on in the book, before Ged really discovers his powers, and right before he meets his mentor, actually, this is think think uh, this is more of a tribal kind of uh, structure. Imagine tribes that kind of grow into villages, but they're very small, very impoverished, very kind of backwards places, and they're constantly visited by pirates. So. You know they're raiding each other and they're doing these things. So so in in Ged's town, he's working he's working for his father who he doesn't seem very close to, and there is a raiding party that comes to his village and it's a, a, a massive danger and they're all going to die and they're going to have all their stuff stolen and they'll be taken into slavery or whatever. So young Ged who had just kind of like been taken under the wing by a, a hedge witch basically who taught him like one small thing, he decides to do the only thing he can do. And he basically does something that I won't tell you, but whatever it is, it saves the village, but it uses up uh, a lot of himself. And so the passage goes like this. Down in the village, the house that had been set afire still blazed. They ran to put the fire out since their battle had been won. In the street near the great yew, they found Dunny, the bronze smith's son, standing by himself, bearing no hurt, but speechless and stupid like one stunned. They were well aware of what he had done, and they led him into his father's house and went calling for the witch to come down out of her cave and heal the lad who had saved their lives and their property, all but four who were killed by the cargs and the one house that was burnt. No weapon hurt had come to the boy, but he would not speak nor eat nor sleep. He seemed not to hear what was said to him, not to see those who came to see him. There was none in those parts wizard enough to cure what ailed him. His aunt said he has overspent his power, but she had no art to help him. Obviously, this goes on, but it's the word architecture when you're talking about crafting a society that had so many specific stresses on it for such a small amount of time. I mean, he's only, he's only, he's only he, we, we deal with him growing up for a chapter, maybe two. I think is one of the things that was what most impressed me about her writing, even again, as I was very young, because everything means so much. And then, you know, a lot of things that this, his journey is pretty episodic. And there's not a lot of time he goes backward. So he doesn't, so every, every place is kind of new. But even if he spends a small amount of time in a place, it's a very, very specifically crafted place and it's very, very interesting to read. Um, so you said pirates, but is it more apt to say Vikings? Well, that was Vikings. And on that, on that point, this is not really giving anything away, but this is another part of the book that I've always loved. And if you were to read the book, I suppose you might have this moment of, of realization, but it's... You know, for those at home, I think it's it's worth talking about the people of Gaunt, which uh, is the island that Ged grows up on. Right. 
They call him Dunny. He didn't have his name. That was his later. original right, name, right. Dunny. It's invaded by these Viking-type characters called the Kargs. And later on, it's shown that the Kargs are light-skinned, and the people of Gaunt are dark-skinned, or sort of like an olive-brown complexion. And over and over, it's shown that the... Uh, because I mean, as a Western audience, when you're when you're a kid, you're reading, you're like, oh yeah, it's it's a little white. Well, she doesn't say for white, a while. White boy, like she doesn't me. say what color he is for not, a long time. Not for a long time. Nor his nor his best friend, who is much darker than him. But it comes out that we are dealing with you know, the vast majority of the of the people that live in Earthsea are dark skinned, right? And that the the people who are dark skinned are generally peaceful, generally, <laughs> right. uh, you know, they're they're people living their lives. You know, there are obviously characters that are. Have been, uh, you know, they're individuals with evil intent, but the the cards, the Vikings, who are over and over painted as invaders, are the white men. Oh, thanks, Ursula. Right, totally. <laughs> when was this book written? This was written sixty-eight, and it was in the libraries by sixty-nine already. Yep. You know what? Let's uh, let's pick one more chapter. I'll let you pick it. We'll get a little bit more of the Wizard Diversity, and then I will highly recommend it, and Adam will highly recommend it, and maybe I'll uh, go out and buy it and read it in your uh, sequestion. No, I might have to look for a second, because I really, at this point, maybe I don't want to read too much of the chapters about what happens later in the book. Read about it when he's 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 already left his master, he's gotten to the island where the School of Wizards is, and he's trying to find it. Oh, because it's the people of the it's the people right, of that right, town right. that gave him the most shit. Oh yeah, this part. This is the one. He goes to ask all these people, where's the? It's like a, a fool will never find it, and a wise man knows already, or something, and like they're just being super cryptic with him. This is like this is like a page and a half. Is that too long? Let's say we can do whatever we want. All right. This is when Ged first arrives. At the School for Wizards, Chapter 3, The School for Wizards. Ged slept that night aboard Shadow, and early in the morning parted with those first sea comrades of him, they shouting good wishes cheerily after him as he went up the docks. The town of Thwill is not large, its high houses huddling close over a few steep, narrow streets. To Ged, however, it seemed a city, and not knowing where to go, he asked the first townsman of Thwill he met where he could find the warder of the school on Roke. The man looked at him, sidelong a while, and said, The wise don't need to ask, the fool asks in vain. And so went on along the street. Ged went uphill until he came out into a square, rimmed on three sides by the houses with their sharp slate roofs, and on the fourth side by the wall of a great building whose few small windows were higher than the chimney tops of the houses, a fort or castle, it seemed, built of mighty gray blocks of stone. In the square beneath it, market booths were set up, and there was some coming and going of people. Ged asked his question of an old woman with a basket of mussels, and she replied, You cannot always find the warder where he is, but sometimes you find him where he is not, and went on crying her mussels to sell. In the great building near one corner there was a mean little door of wood. Ged went to this and knocked aloud. To the old man who opened the door he said, I bear a letter from the mage Ogeon of Gaunt to the warder of the school on this island. I want to find the warder, but I will not hear more riddles and scoffing. This is the school, the old man said mildly. I am the doorkeeper. Enter if you can. Ooh. <laughs> so everybody, I, 
I'm excited to read it again just because it's here. And so I'm definitely going to pick it up again. And for all you at home, as you're sitting around and you're looking for book recommendations, highly recommended. A rare book that you can read and enjoy. It's not like watching a kid's movie where you're like, hey, we like it too. It's not like you're tolerating it. Relatively young children would enjoy this book. And all, like you said, up to grandparents. I, right. I, I, will, I will read it again starting now. Probably. And I do think this, the point needs to be stressed is this is not a fair weather book. This book pretty quickly towards its one right. third point becomes very dark, very scary. And personally dark too. And emotionally taxing. Oh yeah. And, and it, it wrenches the, uh, the, I don't want to fucking say soul. I don't know. I mean, it's I'll, I'll take it's, it. it. It's, it's a, it's a, it's an intense wrenching book. It's an intense wrenching story. But not without, not without enough structure to be a story that's also enjoy, enjoyable. It's still two, only 200 pages. And only 200 pages, and it's not Harry Potter. So if you're expecting like wizards of that sort, then you're not going to get them. It's a very deep book. And very it, very it, much. It, it lasts lo- far longer uh, after you... Uh, it lasts for a long time after you finish reading it. And I, I would say very, very firmly, it's in the pantheon of American letters. I think this is... If I had to pick uh, oh, yes. you know, maybe the top 25 books ever written in English, I would probably put this one in. Criminally underrated story. Right. Uh, so everybody, thank you so much. Uh, I just want to remind you, we do work for tips. So if you feel like dropping a dollar two in our tip jar, go see us at Venmo. Where are we going to go at Venmo, Adam? That would be the Cottonmouth Club dash staff. Correct. The Cottonmouth Club dash staff. We just got the word that we're going to be uh, we're going to be shut down for probably another thirty days. So so the upside is we will have more content for you. And uh, listen, we're going to do everything we can to try to keep the idea of not just our bar but bars in general alive in your heart. So we, as long as we are able, will continue to do what we're doing. You guys stay safe. Keep your hands washed. Don't touch your face. Stay sequestered. And uh, by all means, uh, come check out our live streams nine o'clock. Central Time on uh, Facebook and Instagram, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks, all.